0: Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a out of wicked proportions. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the at TSN Hockey Bobcast, Volume 2, Episode 2. This one on Friday, October the 6th, 2017. That would be indeed the first Friday of the NHL regular season. So we get, I guess we could call this the Holy Hat Trick Edition of the Bobcast. What a start to the season! Four opening night hat tricks two on Wednesday, two on Thursday. Connor McDavid, Wayne Simmons on Wednesday. Brandon Saad and Alexander Ovechkin on Thursday night. So uh, great opening to the season. Um, I really do believe that uh, there's a chance we, we're in really a golden age of hockey. Because when you look at the level of play that Sidney Crosby's at and and where he was at to, to take the Penguins to the, the Cup last year, and when you look at what Connor McDavid did the other night, Oh my God, have you ever seen anything like that second goal? He scored poor TJ Brody still has wind He's a good skater. He's a good NHL defenseman. Um, I don't know what we're going to do with McDavid there's no league above the national hockey league. And, uh, there are going to be times when he, uh, he makes it look like he's too good for it. That said, it's a really tough league. Everybody makes adjustments. And, uh, I would assume the the sledding will still be tough on some nights for Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews and all this great young talent. But the bottom line is there is so much great young talent. So exciting. Um, The the beginning of the season is always good too, because we always seem like we get a lot of goals and we get all sorts of great comebacks and, and we're all excited because now the games mean something and it's back on and we've got stuff to talk about. And sooner or later, the coaches will find a way to grind it down And uh, a few weeks from now, we'll be going on and on about there's not enough offense. This is a problem. That's a problem. So please do remember Mackenzie's law. And how bad is that? So early in the season, a third person reference and not only a third person reference, but I'm ascribing a law unto myself. Um, But simply anybody who knows me knows that I've been saying for the better part of the last 10 years, uh, enjoy the first two weeks of the season, but please don't pay no never mind. Uh, to what goes on. Don't read too much in positive or negative, team or individual, in what you see in the first two weeks. It can often be a mirage. Um Now, when you get to the three-week mark, as I like to say, you've got to take note of the trends, good or bad, and start to allow that, hey, it's three weeks in, this may in fact uh, be something that's uh, that's either good or bad for your favorite team or your favorite player. But I always say by four weeks in, book it. Uh, what you see is what you get. Now, that's not to say things don't change over a season, but um, I firmly believe four weeks into the NHL season, uh, everybody's kind of fully formed. And uh, like I say, what you see is what you get. So keep in mind that uh, when we get to um, Halloween, um, what you see is what you get so uh, but in the meantime enjoy it's been a busy week for me um monday i went down to the nbc studios in stanford connecticut with darren dreger and there was a big planning meeting uh had lots of people in gary bettman bill daly people from the national hockey league stephen walkham Coley campbell basically everybody associated with nhl head office to come in and they make a presentation on what uh, their expectations for the season are and uh Our our own internal group with uh, executive producer Sam Flood and everybody else goes over the the year at at NBC. Um, Quick shout out, of course, to um, Eddie Olchuk, who's uh, battling uh, cancer um, and and wasn't able to be there, but he he was able to be there on video. So that was great to see Edzo. So all the best to him in, in his battle. Um, and obviously, uh, we all miss Dave Strader very much, uh, passed away uh, after his battle with cancer just prior to the, the beginning of the regular season. So in any case, uh, as I said, busy week got down to NBC and Stamford on Monday, which was great. Um, flew right back to Toronto on Tuesday, did the season preview at TSN Tuesday night and then got up Wednesday morning and flew right back uh, to New York and up to Stamford, Connecticut for the... Uh, opening of the season with the, the Pittsburgh St. Louis game in Philadelphia and uh and San Jose. Um so also I should point out uh with this being Thanksgiving weekend in Canada, happy Thanksgiving to all the Canadians. Happy Columbus Day weekend to uh to our Americans. And and I must admit that uh, as I do this podcast, this is a week where I've been a little sleep deprived because of the schedule that I just laid out for you. And, you know, when I was a young guy, I didn't need any sleep at all. Um, Two, three hours, no big deal. Four or five hours. That was a good night's sleep, four or five hours. Um, If it happened to be no hours for some reason, that was fine too. Um, I I could skip a night of sleep and next day work and grind away and it would be fine. No problem. I was a a veritable machine in my younger days. But I'm 61 years old now. And uh, I got to tell you that for me, eight hours sleep is is optimum that's what i'd love to get eight hours is would be fan is fantastic and and that's a nice goal um but i mean seven hours i find is what i is necessary if i want to feel good every day and and not feel like a bag of hammers i need seven hours sleep now the, re- the reality is not very many nights do i get seven um but that's uh certainly the goal you know hockey's a nighttime game so there's games on at night and then there's the the late games on the coast which sometimes i stay up for depending on the circumstances sometimes i don't um but my job in addition to watching games at night is very much a daytime job including relatively early early morning radio hits all over the country and uh uh, communicating with people over the course of the day and then watching games. So it's a day and night job, which is fine. I got no problem with that. But um, when you start to factor in travel, and as I said, uh, in Toronto to New York, to Stanford on Monday, back on Tuesday, and then back down on Wednesday, um, basically on those travel days, the best you can hope for for a night of sleep is six hours. And uh so, and quite often it ends up being a little bit less than that. Now, if you happen to read my Twitter timeline this week, you will know that I did have a little bit of a an episode Wednesday at my hotel near LaGuardia Airport. And uh, that's the reason probably why I'm talking about sleep. Now, I, sh- I should point out that these trips to NBC are what I call real in and out things. And, and I am very much a creature of habit. Um, I take the same... 10:15 flight out of Toronto to LaGuardia every Wednesday to go to MBC. Um, I eat breakfast at the same place at Pearson International Airport. I have the same thing for breakfast. I've got my normal routine for getting through security and, uh, and uh, U.S. customs. Um, real creature of habit, so th- that's great. I, I land at the airport in uh, LaGuardia usually before noon, get a shuttle to the airport, go to the hotel, check in, grab a little lunch, do a couple of hours work and prep around 3pm. NBC sends a car service. They pick me up at the hotel and they ferry me up to Stamford, Connecticut, where I go in, we have a production meeting. We do this and that, do a couple of hits in the pregame show, one in the first or second intermission, back into the car service, back to my hotel, usually no later than 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Uh, Get on Twitter, watch a game or two on uh, the NHL package on my iPad. Uh, get tired by midnight, go to sleep. Get up at 6 a.m. and head home. Um, that's the routine. So, like I say, the best case scenario for these nights is to get six hours sleep. So, and and I when I check into the hotel, I know that listen, it's uh, I'm I'm probably not going to spend any more than nine or 10 hours in that hotel room and six of those nine or 10 hours are going to be sleeping. So uh, it's a pretty low bar when it comes to what's necessary for a hotel. This is not a vacation. I don't need the fanciest hotel or what have you. So it's all based on convenience and getting in and out as efficiently and as quickly as possible. Now I used to just stay at the LaGuardia Marriott. It's right across the road from beautiful LaGuardia, everybody's favorite airport and a very short shuttle ride it's a Marriott if you've been to a Marriott they're all the same basically this one's got some miles on it like LaGuardia but it was fine and dandy but then along the way I I decided to uh, go over to SPG Starwood and I know they're linked now and I know it they're all owned by the same people um but uh and and you can get points for either one and you can transfer the points back and forth and I do but to get the stays and the nights and to get your status up to where you want it to be. So you get a few perks here and there. Um, you got to stay in one or the other to try and generate those. And I, and I decided that I was going to go the Starwood route. So there's no star, there was no Starwood, uh, hotel property right beside LaGuardia, but there is one in Flushing, New York, which is just a little further away. So, um, for the last uh, year or two, I've been staying at the uh, the Sheridan and Flushing, and it's been great. Um, now, it, it's a little more inconvenient. The shuttle, you end up waiting 15, 20 minutes for it. You, you get the shuttle, and it's 15, 20 minutes in there. So it can take 40 minutes to get to the hotel, whereas if you're staying at one of the places right beside LaGuardia, it's uh, five, 10 minutes to get there. So you you lose a half hour along the way, but the people treated me great at, at the Sheraton. It's a good spot. It's uh, Flushing is, uh, is, is a massive Chinatown, which is really kind of cool. It's got a lot of character to it. Uh, there's lots of things to do if you do decide to venture out. But quite frankly, like I said, I'm in my room for a couple hours doing some prep in a car service, up, back, done, boom, all done. So anyways, this year I noticed that Starwood SPG now has a new property, Right beside the Marriott, right across the road from LaGuardia. It's a. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce this. Is it an aloft or a loft? Probably a loft. Anyways, I'll call it a loft, and if it's a loft, so be it. So, anyways, they. If, if you've ever been to an aloft before, they they're sort of uh, funky millennial uh, places, uh, all bright colors, orange and purple and pink, and everything's you know, this funky minimalism. Uh, every all the everything's not. It's like low, low chairs and and low couches and no carpet and it's like a loft and exposed, exposed plumbing and fixtures and and what have you. But as I say, it's neither here nor there and the, and everything sort of scaled down from what you would normally expect from a hotel. But you know what? It's close. It's clean. Uh, it's brand new. And uh, I get my uh, SPG points and stays. So what could be better than that? So on Monday. Myself and Darren Dreger checked in there Monday night and it was great. It was clean, quiet, comfortable, everything you want. Uh, Got the shuttle back and forth. And I thought, okay, you know what? As much as I love the shirt and flushing and the people there are great, this is a little more convenient. So boom, Bob's your uncle, a loft it's going to be. So on Wednesday, uh, I stayed there again. Now I came back from my NBC responsibilities. And when I came into the lobby, on Monday night when I came into the lobby at 1030 or 11 o'clock at night, It was empty. It was a ghost town. It was quiet as a library. I came in on Wednesday night and without a word of a lie, if if there were, there had to be close to 100 people in this open lobby where if you know in a loft, they don't really have a front desk. They have a little pedestal in the middle of the lobby and it's surrounded by their little restaurant and their bar and everything's just open like a a loft. And, uh, And I came in, there must have been 100 people in there. And it wa it turns out it was a, a corporate group that were all staying at the hotel and they all must've been in, in the area for meetings, meetings or whatever. And so it was, uh, it was cooking. I mean, it, and, and, and because there's no carpet and it's all kind of lofty with high ceilings and, uh, what have you, it was really noisy. The din of just people talking and the background music from the bar and everything else. It, it was really loud and crowded and it was, Hey, it was kind of cool. I was thinking of having a drink and, and talking to some people. And then I said, not nah, I need my rest. going to go to bed now. I did happen to end up with a room that was, I knew was going to be too close to the lobby, and I knew that noise might be a little bit of an issue. Although I never could have imagined that there'd be almost a hundred people in there drinking and and what have you at uh, that time of night at an airport hotel. So, anyways, I went up to my room, closed the door, and I'm like, oh, that's not too bad. I can live with that. I watched Connor McDavid uh, score his hat trick on my iPad. I started to get tired close to midnight, turned it off, and while I could hear a little bit of the din from the uh, um, the, 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 lobby bar and what have you, I went right to sleep. No problem. About 3am loud arguing right outside my door two really, two men, really loud foreign voices. I don't know what language they were speaking, but they were really loud. Fair enough. It's a hotel shit happens. So it woke me up. Um, that lasted a minute or two. They were gone and I thought, okay, great. But then I realized after they stopped yelling that there was an incredible, hellacious amount of noise coming from the lobby. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? It's 3am. That party must be really cooking down there. If I fell asleep with the hundred people in the lobby making a fair amount of noise uh, before midnight, how many people do they have in the lobby now? Like what's going on? Is this a rave or what? So I thought, you know, come on, three o'clock in the morning, time to, time to shut it down. I need my sleep. So I stumble around my room. I go over, I find the phone, I hit the button for the front desk. Ring, 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 no answer. Well, that's interesting. Hang up, wait a couple of minutes, do it again. Ring, 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 no answer. Now I'm starting to get pissed off. So I keep this up and literally for 15 or 20 minutes, I keep hitting zero or the, the front desk thing and, and nobody's answering. There's nobody home, um, and and apparently there's a massive party going on in the lobby, and so maybe I guess the the night manager or the front desk people were partying, but in any case I wasn't happy. Now I'm starting to get pissed off, so I decided I better go investigate what's going on here. So I had to get dressed, go out of my room. Now I'm on the I could walk out to a mezzanine that overlooked, and when I walked out of my room, I looked over and there were probably only 15 or 20 people in in the bar area and there was a bartender there and i think i saw a guy that works at the hotel not at the front desk but a hotel employee sitting at one of the lounge chairs kind of staring out into the parking lot and i thought that's interesting maybe somebody should try answering the phone and uh but the the issue wasn't so much the noise from the 15 or 20 people somebody had cranked the music to 11 i mean <laughs> you you can't even imagine It was so loud and it was like being, it was like being in a club and, and the beats were absolutely incredible. And I I don't know, I, the, they call it the WXYZ lounge. Um, it was more like studio 54. I was looking for Don Murdoch and Ron Duguay. It was that loud and, uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely crazy. So I'm, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, do I want to go down in my roots shorts and my Lululemon Shirt that I wear as a quasi set of pajamas, or and, and confront drunk people at three in the morning and and tell them they're making too much noise. Can they turn the music down? I, I didn't think that was a particularly wise idea. So I went back to my room and started phoning the front desk again, and continued to get no answer. So now I'm really pissed off. So I upped my game a little. I called uh, Starwood SPG and got somebody at the, their main reservations area, explained what was going on and uh, tried to impress upon them that they need to get on the phone or make communication with somebody who's in charge of this hotel and tell them to shut the hell up. And uh, the woman was helpful enough to a point, but this is one of those ones where if you've you know, you're going to the emergency room and you're really in a lot of pain or you're bleeding and they're asking you what your address is. And then they start asking you how many years you've lived at that house and, and a whole bunch of stuff that they want to update your profile. Well, this poor woman on the Starwood line wanted to do that with me. And I said, just get hold of somebody and tell them to turn down the fucking music. And, and that became the theme for the next little while. So anyways, nothing happened. And I continued to uh, phone the front desk and nothing happened. And then finally, about 3.45 a.m., somebody answered the phone when I called the front desk and I said, yeah, and I explained the situation. I said, it's 3.45, your music's on 11, I'm trying to sleep, turn down the fucking music. And the person said, well, I'm just a bartender. And I said, I don't care, turn down the fucking music. And she gave some more reasons why she didn't think she could do or whatever. And I was equally vociferous again. Um, five, 10 years ago, I really tried to stop being an asshole. But on this particular night, I waived that. And uh, anyways, um, finally, about 3.55, close to 4 a.m., the music finally ceased and desisted. And uh, that was basically it. So my six hours of sleep ended up being closer to four to four and a half hours. And I was somewhat agitated before I got back to sleep. So I woke up in the morning and I was going to go down to the front desk and give everybody hell and what have you. But it was like, once I got there, I only had four or five minutes before the shuttle was coming to take, take everybody who was waiting for it to go to LaGuardia. And there were a number of people lined up behind me. And there was just some poor millennial behind the desk that obviously had no clue what was going on or maybe they did. I, I don't know. But in any case, I decided that I was going to be wasting my time explaining this whole story to somebody when I needed to get on the shuttle. So instead, I went to LaGuardia, checked in for my Air Canada flight, and um, decided to take to Twitter. So I took SPG and uh Aloft to task and immediately got a direct message on Twitter from something called SPG Assist, which is apparently a 24-hour service, which is good to know now, that, uh, um, uh, maybe they can turn down the music. Um, but in any case, they said that they, they apologized for what happened. They would pass this, uh, everything along to, uh, the manager of the hotel and the manager of the hotel will be in contact with me. So I thought, okay, good. Uh, you know, social media, uh, something positive can come of it. And, uh, in any case, um, I'm still waiting for the manager. Uh, here we are past 12 noon on, uh, on Friday, and uh, Mr. Manager of the Aloft, I'm, I'm not even sure there is a manager. I'm starting to think that this Aloft is just some sort of youth hostel, a millennial youth hostel near LaGuardia, that maybe there is no manager. Um, but uh, I'm still waiting for him to call me, and uh, and he hasn't. So um, I'm not sure what uh, what the next plan is here. You know, I guess... I got to figure out what I'm going to do next. I'm scheduled to be in there on Wednesday night. So now let me ask you guys this question for you. Um, Monday night was a perfectly fine experience at the Aloft, Aloft. Um, No problems whatsoever. Um, Wednesday was a particularly poor experience. So now do I go back to taking the longer shuttle ride and go back to my friends at the Sheraton and Flushing? Or do I let bygones be bygones and uh, take another chance on the Aloft on Wednesday night? Or um, do I continue to berate SPG and Aloft on Twitter and and see where we go from there? I guess a lot of this is going to depend on when Mr. Aloft manager, uh, if or when he ever gets back to me. Um, but, uh, I will keep you posted on, uh, my, my saga. And in the meantime, we're uh, officially renaming, uh, this edition of the Bobcast as the turn down the fucking music edition of the Bobcast. Okay. Enough of my BS problems with, uh, my hotels. Um, let's get to, uh, some hockey talk and, uh, And some listener questions, although even the hockey talk part, it's hard to come by these days, and you'll see what I mean by that right here. First question up from Aaron Jackson. Hey, Bob, how can the NHL say and promote hockey is for everyone when the Pittsburgh Penguins visit the White House where the president doesn't believe in equality? You can't say one thing and then do something that is completely the opposite. That from Aaron. Oh, boy, Aaron. Aaron. Well, 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 welcome to hockey politics and the intersection. These are interesting times that we live in and it is an interesting and complex issue. So let's wade into it a little bit here. Um, but before we get into the specifics of the Pittsburgh Penguins, by the way, the Penguins, I believe are scheduled to visit the white house on October 10th. So, uh, next week and not too distant future. In anyways, um, my policy, if you want to call it that, um, especially when it comes to Twitter, um, but also just, you know, generally speaking, when I do a game coverage or whatever, I don't talk about religion and I don't talk about politics. And if you go through my Twitter feed, for the most part, um, I don't go there. Um, I try to focus more on the news and breaking news you know, trade signings, firings, whatever. Um, And also use Twitter for a whole bunch of other things, goofy stuff, but um, like getting them to turn the music down or figure that out. But that's another story. Um, Anyways, I never saw great value for me personally. And I understand these are personal choices, but his Twitter account is their Twitter account. I understand that. But I never saw value in pretty much knowing that I was going to be pissing off 50% of my followers or listeners or viewers for the sake of offering a personal opinion that in my opinion <laughs> speaking of opinions that is no more or less valuable than yours or anybody else's does it really matter what i think about this or that especially outside of outside of hockey what my politics or core values are that said um i think it's pretty obvious the times we live in you can't put your head in the sand And just say, well, sports and politics are separate. They don't ever cross over. Well, we know they cross over. Um, You know, I I get that everybody's getting politically engaged and I understand why. And I'm actually interested when when athletes or coaches or people involved in various sports um, decide to express a political opinion or a, a social opinion um because i find i find that interesting because though those those are the people that play and administer and run the games and it's always interesting to to hear what they they say so for example uh greg popovich san antonio spurs or steve Kerr with the golden state warriors very eloquent guys bright guys and and they've certainly in and, and since donald trump's been president um they've certainly been very active socially and politically in in offering up some some very interesting opinions strong opinions and um and i'm i'm fascinated by that to be quite honest um but i also see other people um max Domi from the arizona coyotes after the uh, terrorist attack in uh, in edmonton most recently um he re- he made a remark about immigration policy in canada and why he thought it needed to be tightened up um, I recall at the time Trump was either getting elected or just got elected. I think it was Robin Leonard, the goaltender for the Buffalo Sabres, who who had something on his mask about Donald Trump. And you know what? If if, if Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr want to enlighten me or offer their views on the way they see the world they live in, um, then I want to hear what they have to say. But you know what? I also want to hear what Max Domi or Robin Leonard or anybody who might be uh, um, a fan of Donald Trump or more conservative or whatever the case may be. Um, What's always interesting is the reaction that these types of things get, especially on Twitter. I, I call Twitter the echo chamber because I think the vast majority of people on Twitter follow people who think like they think, who speak like they speak, and therefore, so there'll be a lot of people who I follow who when Greg Popovich or Steve Kerr attack Donald Trump or um, provide a, a, an insightful view as to how they see things, um, you get a lot of, this is fantastic. These guys are heroes. This is why sports and politics must mix. This is why you can't be part of the don't stick to, don't stick to sports crowd. And those guys get absolutely lauded for, for speaking out and being socially involved, and as I said, I've got uh, I've got no problem with that. But I notice that when Max Domi or Robin Leonard or somebody who's from the other end of the political spectrum um, present their view on something like that, um, there's quite a backlash, and uh, and that person ends up getting shredded. On Twitter, by the same people, and, and quite often the people who are shredding them are saying, "Hey, stick to what you know. Um, I don't think you understand the immigration policy in Canada, Max Domi, so don't be talking about it." Um, and, and suddenly, the same people who are lauding Popovich and Kerr for what they say are now mocking and humiliating and and maligning. Um, Max Domi or Robin Leonard or, or whomever, and basically telling them, Hey, stay in your lane. And, and I think a lot of the attacks become really vicious at times, and which I really find ironic because so much of what Popovich and Kerr are talking about is, is, is how you treat people and your core values of, of being a good person. And, uh, and I think there are a number of people out there who are absolutely in favor of that until they get somebody in their timeline who, who doesn't share their view of the world and suddenly they uh they become pretty vicious and, and, and go after them and uh and become about as mean spirited and vicious in denouncing those other people as they are righteous in in lauding the other guys. So I, I I see guys go from kumbaya to killer in in 140 characters uh, or 280. Now that some people get 280 characters for Twitter, and I'm I'm not one of them by the way, uh, which is fine. 140 will uh, will do it. So um, so anyways, as much as I want to hear what Popovich or Kerr or Domi or Leonard or anybody who plays the game wants to say about um, our society, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I really don't give a flying, you know what, um, about most of what the sports media thinks about social and politics issues. Um, and as, as I said, off the top, I fully understand their right to run their Twitter account or to run their lives as they see fit. They can express themselves, uh, in any way that they choose to do so. Um, but I, I must admit, I, I grow weary of it when somebody, um, constantly views everything that happens in the game through that social and political spectrum or prism. And and so much of what they do gets clouded. So they do a lot of really good work and I enjoy a lot of their really good work. And a lot of these people I'm talking about are very good friends of mine, um, but I've had to mute so many people. I follow over 600 people and, and over 300 of them right now are muted because because we live in such divisive, polarized, political and social times it it's dominating everything and and just from a pure logistical point of view never mind what your politics are what your what your social values are i don't have time to read an endless stream of uh, diatribe um from hockey writers or columnists or whomever um talking about politics so and as i said uh, it, that's that's on me to either unfollow them or mute them um but i i get why people um, you know, average people say stick to stick to sports um, for no other reason than, than the expediency of it. So let's go back to Aaron's question for a second. And he talks about the NHL and promoting hockeys for everybody. And he's upset that, that the NHL is going to be represented at the Donald Trump white house um, with the, uh, the penguins visit um, on, on, on October 10th. Um, The reality why it's really difficult to not talk about politics, um, is that, um, you know, when Donald Trump went after the, the, the national football league players and called them sons of bitches. And when the thing heated up with Steph Curry and the golden state warriors, um, everything, it can't help, but become politicized. And the Pittsburgh Penguins put out that press release on that Sunday morning, um, when everything was going on in the NFL on the day after the golden state warriors and Steph Curry had it out publicly on Twitter with Donald Trump, as, as somebody who covers the sport, there's no choice to, to not talk about it. Um, and to not write about it to, you you can say stick to sports, but you can't, there comes a point in time for everybody and everybody's threshold is different. But, um, you know, I'm not going to tweet my opinions on Twitter um, but when I was asked on radio on that Monday morning, um, the multiple radio shows I did the, the Monday morning after the Pittsburgh Penguins, and they asked me about it, y- you got to have an opinion. You got to have some insight. you got to, you got to offer something up. And so it was that case where when I went into TSN and we did a quiz, the, uh, the, the, one of the questions, the quiz master wanted answers was if you were on the Pittsburgh Penguins, would you go to the white house visit? And we were asked that question. So sometimes you got to step up and answer it. And so it's fine for me to say, I don't want to politicize my Twitter account and and subject my listeners, viewers, readers, or whatever to my own personal opinions. But now there's a a news story that's a sports story that's crossed over to the news threshold and you have no choice. So anyways, um, I said, no, I wouldn't go to the White House. And I, I cited the reason is either wittingly or unwittingly, the Pittsburgh Penguins um, would become political pawns because the minute they show up, uh, Donald Trump is going to take that as an endorsement of of him and his policies at a time when um, other people like the Golden State Warriors and others um, uh, have, have gone against that. So, you know, I, I said, no, now it's interesting. I get a lot of attention for what I say because I have 1.5 million Twitter followers and I've been at TSN a long time and I don't usually offer a ton of opinions on things. So when I do, it tends to go a little bit viral. But what I found interesting about that quiz was that Dave Poulin, a former captain in the National Hockey League, um, and, and, and a really thoughtful, intelligent guy, um, said that, uh, his answer to the question of whether he would go to the white house if he was on the penguins. And he said, no, I found that really fascinating, but that didn't get nearly the attention me saying it did. And I also found it fascinating that Jeff O'Neill, the O-Dog, who's a real character and and tries not to, uh, to be uh, too serious in his life. Let's just put it that way. O-Dog doesn't, uh, doesn't do serious very often. I was very surprised to learn that, that he too, said he wouldn't go to the White House. Because I think for most hockey players, it's path of least resistance. What's the team want to do? Is that what the organization wants to do? Okay, let's go ahead. Let's do it. And I would have assumed that Jeff would have been one of those types of guys... Uh, who played in the National Hockey League uh, when he did, who would say, yeah, whatever the team decides, I'm good with that. Let's just go and let's not politicize it or whatever. But he said no. And he said his reason for not going is because he wouldn't want to get his picture taken with Donald Trump because years later he wouldn't want that out there um, as something that that, uh, that could be used to, uh, against him. So um, I found that really interesting. Um, just as... Uh, as a matter of course. Now, when I said what I said, and TSN circulated the, the quiz wide and far and wide, it was obviously broadcast on, on the air. And they also put it up on Twitter. Um, but I didn't actually put it on my Twitter. I, I never tweeted anything out. Um, the reaction was pretty much predictable. I got a whole bunch of people, especially the ones that I follow, Who said bob is the best ever this is why bob's the best isn't he the great he's got a social conscience way to go bob put me up on a pedestal like you wouldn't believe and the other half and just as intensely was shut the fuck up bob um stick to hockey uh you left leaning libtard um and on and on and on it went and (laughs) even weeks later i'm still getting some of the people who are angry Um, let's call them on the right for lack of a better term, I guess. Uh, There's an elderly lady in Ottawa. I think she's elderly. If not, I, I think I just offended her by saying that she was. And, and every few days since for the last two weeks, she's been tweeting stuff at me. And it's like, Hey people, I, I, I I made one 45 second comment. It wasn't on my Twitter feed. And I'm still getting, which is fine. I listen, and I got a lot of this. Hey, I I used to have a lot of respect for you, um, but I I've lost it now that you're uh, taking sides in these political battles. My my message to those people who lost respect for me because I'm taking sides is I don't care if you ever respected me or not. And and the flip side of that was, I never used to respect you because I didn't like your hockey opinions. But now that you're on the righteous cause of anti Donald Trump. Um, uh, I'm a big fan. Well, you piss off. I don't care whether you're a big fan or not. I got asked a question. I answered it to the best of my ability. And, and that's basically it. So anyway, the the hilarious thing is everybody thinks they know what your politics are because you make one particular comment. um, And, and nothing could be further from the truth. It's the same old story. Everybody now seems to want everything to be black and white. And I, I don't use that as a as a pun. But everybody wants it. You're one way or the other. You're on the right. You're on the left. If you're on the right, you know, then everybody in the left is mad. If you're on the the left, everybody in the right's mad at you. Um, These issues are not so simple. I'm, I had all these people saying, well, it's pretty clear. You're a, a lefty. You're a liberal. You know what? I guess on, on some issues, especially social issues. Yeah. I'm probably left of center on a whole bunch of other issues especially fiscal ones i'm way right a center and i'm not even going to get into who i voted for or when i voted or whatever but just suffice to say that um i don't pigeonhole myself easily and um in any case uh probably enough about that it's it's really a case now where as we start to heat up here with the penguins going to the white house, the whole thing is going to, uh, the whole thing is going to flare up again and and there's no way to avoid it. It's going to have to be discussed. And, uh, I just, I guess I get sick of how judgmental people have become on both sides of the fence. Um, somebody tweeted at Jeffrey Toobin, who's the uh, CNN, Um, legal commentator. And uh, someone tweeted at him and said, wake up and speak out on Twitter about what is going on. And Jeffrey Tubin's response was, thanks, but Twitter is a place for noise, not explanations. And I thought that was a a really good attitude. So anyway, the Pittsburgh Penguins are going to the White House and there's going to be a lot of talk and a lot of debate about that. Um, I made my view known on that a couple of weeks ago. Um, I explained my reasons for it. Um so for me that part of it's over and done. And as I said at the time and as I'll say again now, um the fact that they're going, um the fact that, you know, some players choose to go or want to go, um, I'm fine with that too, because uh last time I checked that's what uh, this is all about is following your heart and your conscience and uh trying to understand what uh what other people think and feel and believe. Um just as an aside. Um, when I was growing up, I almost got out of the, if I hadn't gotten the job as editor in chief of the hockey news, I was going to be a policeman. Um, I always wanted to be a cop. And, um, um, I think that people that go into service, be it a police officer, fireman, uh, the military, I, I just have an enormous amount of respect, um, profound respect for what they do. I think it's uh, I think it's courageous, and I think it's dangerous, um, and and all of those things. And as I've told you before many times on the Bobcast, I'm fascinated by military history and military things, and uh, uh, I, I can't get enough of reading books about what it is to be a Navy SEAL and uh, the various values and, and and what they have to do to become a Navy SEAL and the jobs that they do. So there, there's nobody that's more on board with that whole um, aspect of uh, service and uh, patriotism, if you want to call it that. But, um, and it's a very big but, um, I can also allow that in in a lot of these institutions that I talked about and, and in life in general, that there is systemic racism and that there is racial inequality. And I can understand and empathize with minorities and players in the National Football League and, and other sports when they take a knee. And 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 I don't look at it so, so black and white, if you'll pardon the bad pun, of uh, wrapping yourself in a flag and saying anybody who expresses any kind of dissent um, isn't an American or a Canadian or, or what have you. So as I said, um, I'm just I'm just not big on being overly judgmental. I think everybody's within obvious um, confines of, of good taste and, and legal behavior. Um, Everybody's free to do what works for everybody. And that we'd all be a lot better off if, if there, if there was an outgrowth of the dialogue of the penguins going, if there was any empathy um, from one side to the other, but I, I just, I know the lowest common denominator prevails in these debates. And as such, uh, not looking forward to that debate. Time for a little listener feedback. This one comes from Robert Dempsey. Rob, who says he lives nearish Buffalo. Bob, would you be willing to put the Bobcast on Stitcher Radio? It is the only way as an Android user that I can pre-download it and listen to it when I'm not in a service area, which is most of the time. I believe Google Play and SoundCloud require a subscription. Thanks, Rob, nearish Buffalo. Uh, ask and ye shall receive, uh, the good folks at TSN, uh, who are in charge of the Bobcast tell me that the Bobcast should now be on Stitcher Radio. So there you go, Rob. I hope that works for you. Uh, next up, Dear Bobby Margarita. I've been meaning to write you since I heard the final Bobcast of last season. You talked about the topic of diversity in hockey, and it struck me as a way to get some of the wider issues of the sport at the grassroots level. Frankly, I believe that hockey and the NHL's lack of diversity stems from the abhorrent cost of financial cost of playing the game. Anyone with kids in hockey knows the burden of buying equipment, not to mention the cost to travel... Uh, for participating at high levels. On top of paying to play, there's also a culture within the game of encouraging kids to go to all sorts of hockey camps to improve their shot and skating. Hamilton Spectator did a fantastic investigative piece on the cost to play hockey. Uh, More affluent uh, neighbourhoods are now producing more NHL players. This relates to diversity fairly easily. Wealthy communities in this country are predominantly white. It's no wonder the NHL lacks diversity. However, there are far more reaching consequences to this issue. Hockey's class divide excludes many. How will it continue to be the prototypical Canadian game if fewer and fewer Canadians can participate? Moreover, for all the talk from the NHL about growing the game, what is the league doing to lower the price to play? Until the league actively tries to change its culture of elitism, all of their rhetoric over growing the game should be understood as growing the game in rich communities. Love the Bobcast. Keep up the great work. I hope the summer treated you well and you're ready for Jack Eichel to lift the Stanley Cup this year. Go Buffalo. Cheers. Nick Bridges, a Sabres fan in Ottawa, the Canadian capital. Okay. Um There's no question about it, Nick. Uh, Hockey is an expensive game to play just by its nature. Skates, equipment, very expensive. It's not like soccer or baseball where there's a limited amount of equipment involved. There's a lot of equipment involved, and it's very costly. You also just can't run out the door and play ice hockey on your front lawn. Um, It's just not possible. Um, unless it's real cold and, uh, you've got a rink, but in any case, you get my drift. It, 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 you, you've, you've got to rent ice. And in so many places, the ice that you need to access, it's run by municipalities and municipalities. We know, um, social services are stretched to their limit. Um, municipal governments, Many of them run at a deficit. Um, it's very costly to run arenas. Um, they don't pay for themselves 24 hours a day because they can only be used at certain times of the day. So the the whole recipe here is that you're absolutely right. It's a it's a really expensive game to play, and it is the number one impediment to getting more and more people involved in the game, especially as both in Canada, the United States, and and and, and immigrants continue to come to the country and you expose them to the game and they love it. But then when they see what it costs versus soccer or baseball or, or some basketball or, or some other sport where you, there's not nearly as much an investment, I'm not sure how you combat that. I think the NHL and the NHLPA um, to varying degrees, try to do what they can here and there, but there, there's no question over the course of time, the cost to play hockey is going to significantly impact it at the grassroots level and the less people who play hockey um down the road it's going to impact the national hockey league in a big way and and i understand what nick's saying about the diversity in the game it's it's a homogenized game it's a mostly white game um that said it's funny i i, I ran into anson carter at uh, the nbc meeting in uh, Stamford, and we were just talking about old times anson carter grew up in scarborough ontario um on the same street or one street over from from Kevin Weeks and of course they are two uh two black kids from Scarborough who uh, who made it to the uh to the National Hockey League and while a lot of this whole stuff has been going on about taking a knee and and what have you um you know we're, Joel Ward with San Jose, Wayne Simmons with the Philadelphia Flyers. The, those players have, have been talking quite eloquently, I might add, about the, the issues of, of systemic race, racism and, uh, and racial injustice, not just in the United States, but in Canada as well. And um, I'm proud to say that those two guys happen to be from, from Scarborough as well and so are the Stewart brothers, Anthony and Chris. So it's, uh, it's funny. Many of the, the, the black players who, who have played in the national hockey league or who are playing in the national hockey league happen to come from Scarborough, Ontario, which is where I was effectively raised. And, uh, in fact, a lot of these guys grew up within a mile or two of, of where the TSN studios are right now. So, um, I hear what Nick is saying. I don't, have the answers, um, but anything and everything we can do, uh, company, corporate people can do, um, the various leagues can do to make the game more affordable. um, Because I I do know this, I I will tell you this. I've not met a hockey coach or a general manager who could care about the color of anybody's skin, their nationality, their religion. Um, Hockey people want hockey players and they are willing to take them. If they're good enough, they will get there. The, the, the key is getting enough of these people entering into the game. So they get an opportunity to prove they're good enough. Um, that's, you know, a separate issue, but uh, um, I don't believe there's an inherent bias against minorities in, in terms of being accepted on a hockey team Um by a coach or a general manager, um, because as I say, um, if 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 a white head coach in the National Hockey League thought he could win the Stanley Cup with a team consisting entirely of of blacks or Asians or Europeans, um, believe me, uh, that's what they'd do. One final point on, on what I just mentioned there is: I would never suggest for a moment that that a lot of black players that have made it to the National Hockey League or even those who haven't, haven't dealt with racism along the way and and the comments and the slurs and all sorts of those things. I'm just trying to say that any hockey coach I know would be proud to have any player on his team who's good enough to be on it. And so hopefully we can can get to that point where there is more uh, diversity in the game. Okay, on to hockey, hockey matters. Um, this question comes from Stephen Grill. Hi, Bob. Hope you enjoyed the suburb. I find it only fitting I write in for the season opener as I wrote you for the first episode last year asking for your favorite Nassau Cal- County Coliseum memory, which, by the way, was an awesome story and my very minuscule claim to fame in Bobcast history. Uh, by the way, uh, Stephen asked uh, if I had any great... Uh, Nassau County Coliseum stories last year. And if you go back to the Bobcast episode, that's the one where I went to my first NHL All-Star game and proceeded to get absolutely obliterated drinking about a dozen rum and Cokes while the game was on. Um very foolish young man is editor in chief of the hockey news, but that's another story for another Bobcast episode. Back to a Stephen's letter. Anyway, I'd like to get your thoughts on, and you guessed it, John Tavares and his looming contract extension. All of the Islander fans know the type of person and player that he is, but do you believe he is truly considering leaving the organization? He has been so important and loyal to the franchise it is difficult to even fathom him leaving. Thanks, Bob, and looking forward to the Steven Stephen Grill from Long Island, New York Boy, oh boy, this is going to be something we're going to talk about a lot. And this is going to be something that New York Islander fans get really agitated about because they don't even want to think about the prospect or the possibility that John Tavares might not be the the foundational piece of their franchise for the next eight years. Uh, Tavares' contract expires at the end of this season. He's eligible to be an unrestricted free agent on july 1 and he is eligible and has been since last uh since this past july 2nd to sign as long as an eight-year extension with the new york islanders and the fact that he hasn't signed it yet um has certainly raised eyebrows around the national hockey league now i know john taveras really well uh i think he's one of the absolute best players in the national hockey league he's also one of the absolute best people and uh He's a captain through and through, and I know for a fact that John Tavares is not going to say or do anything at any time to lead anyone to believe that he's anything but all in on the New York Islanders, because he is all in on this season with the New York Islanders. But, and and you knew there was a but there, if... If it was a foregone conclusion that John Tavares was going to sign an eight-year deal with the New York Islanders, it would have been signed by now. That's not, uh, and and do not confuse that with me saying he's going to free agency, because that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is he could have signed this past summer, and he didn't. And in fact, not only did he not sign this past summer, but to my understanding, there has not been what I would call one substantive negotiation involving actual dollar figures between the New York Islanders and John Tavares. Now listen, I think John Tavares has a lot of time for the ownership of Scott Malkin and John Ledecky and for the general manager Garth Snow. And And I don't doubt for a moment that John Tavares really enjoys playing hockey for a new head coach, uh, Doug Waite. N- not disputing any of that. The New York Islanders are an interesting situation. There are, there are more variables with this New York Islander team than you usually have in similar type situations. And we'll use Steven Stamkos as an example. Very similar. Steven Stamkos was going to be an unrestricted free agent, went into that final year with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and it created an enormous amount of speculation, basically on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis that was a huge distraction all season long would Steven Stamkos come back? And for the longest time, we all offered our opinions. I said, I didn't think he would. And as it turned out, Steven Stamkos basically got to the doorstep of free agency, looked like he was about to go somewhere else when suddenly he reversed field and decided to go back to the Tampa Bay lightning. So is it possible that John Tavares could wait until sometime in the future, anytime between now and July 1st and end up back eight years with the New York Islanders? Yes. That's possible. But the difference between the Stamkos situation and the Tavares situation is that Steven Stamkos knew what building the Tampa Bay Lightning are playing in, would be playing in for the years, for however many years he signed with the team. He knew who his teammates were and had a reasonable idea of what this team is capable of, of, of having been to a Stanley Cup final and and had a degree of confidence that this is a team that can contend for the Stanley Cup in his tenure with that with that organization in the case of John Tavares all I think he's doing right now is and and, and the reason why there haven't been any specific discussions about an extension is simply because he wants more information where the New York Islanders going to play if John Tavares signs an eight-year contract how many years into it Where are they gonna be? Are they gonna be in Belmont? If they're gonna be in Belmont, how long before the rink is built and and they're playing in a new facility? What are they doing in the meantime? Is this Islander team that that is it going north this year or is it going south? And those are all factors where if John Taveras just does nothing but dedicate himself to be the best he can be for the New York Islanders, which he's done every minute that he's ever been a member of that organization then having more information makes it easier for him to make a decision. And in the meantime, Islander fans are going to have to get used to the fact that everybody's going to be speculating on the future, and there are going to be a bunch of people who say, he's going to free agency, he's leaving. And a bunch of people who are adamantly going to go on the other side and say, not a chance in the world, he's our captain, he's dedicated, he's loyal, he'll stick with us. But the reality is, the jury's out, we don't know, we're going to have to wait and see, and we'll just take it from there. Next two questions here are related, so I'll read both questions before I answer. One is from Taylor Young. Hey, Bob, glad to see the pod back up and running. My question is with the Ottawa Senators. I personally believe that with the system they play and the players Guy Boucher has brought in, they can get through missing key players for a time. Carlson, Broussard, etc. Do you think they'll be able to weather the storm and be in a good position when these guys get back? Um, keep up the great work. Taylor from Ottawa. Um, then Anthony from Hamilton, Ontario said, Hey, Bob, can't tell you how excited I am to have the Bobcast back for this season. I just wanted to hear your take on how you think the Atlantic Division projects to end up this season. It seems almost like a lock that Tampa Bay will bounce back this season, but after that, it seems like a bit of a shit show, to say the least. As a Leaf fan, I keep trying to convince myself the Leafs can climb into one of the remaining three spots in the division, while also telling my Hab fan friends that they should be preparing to stop watching hockey by April. I'd love to hear who you think is going to make it to the postseason out of the Atlantic this year. Anthony from Hamilton, okay, Anthony. I don't really do predictions per se, but let's let's talk in general terms about this division and Taylor from Ottawa, we can uh, factor in the uh the Sens thing here. um I would think most objective people would suggest that the biggest surprises of the Atlantic Division last year were that the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Florida Panthers um dropped uh, that were not playoff teams and uh dropped behind the three Canadian teams, Toronto, Montreal and Ottawa. Um, Now, there were reasons. Uh, Injuries had a lot to do with it. The Tampa Bay Lightning were decimated with injuries, and the Florida Panthers were really decimated with injuries, although they also were going through some massive changes in terms of the various directions, and, and, and that's flipped a couple more times since then. So, Listen, I think Florida's a good young team and I think they're on the rise. I think they're going to be better this year. A threat to be a playoff team. The Tampa Bay Lightning, I believe, most certainly are going to be better this year. I I hear a lot of people saying this is the team to beat in the Eastern Conference or predicting that this is the team that's going to win the division and maybe win the East or um, at least get to the Cup Final. And um, I think they're real good, but... I want to see what the absence of Jonathan Druin is all about. I want to see how Mikhail Sergachev plays on the blue line and and whether they have enough uh, depth and uh, um, talent on their on their blue line. So um, I think Toronto's trending up. Uh, I don't think what you saw on opening night was a mirage. They've got a great top three line attack. Um, I think they're uh, they're going to make some noise this year. Um, for me, the, the jury's out on the Montreal Canadiens, but Kerry Price, and we saw it on his opening game against the Buffalo Sabres. Buffalo kind of, kind of dominated that game, carried the play, and, uh, Price, uh, allowed the, the Canadiens to win that in, in the shootout. Um, to Ottawa, conventional wisdom is they are going to take a step back, that they're not as good as they demonstrated last year, that they got lucky. I don't buy it. I think the structure that Guy Boucher's got, um, the, the goaltending that they get is, is consistent. Um, I think Thomas Shabbat at some point will be heard from this season. And, and the best news of all, all Taylor from Ottawa is that Derek Broussard was in the lineup on opening night. So he's made a quick recovery from his shoulder, uh, injury and surgery. And, um, Eric Carlson right now, um, is, ske- I think scheduled to play on Saturday night. So, um, some of the injuries that we thought might've torpedoed the Ottawa senators, um, are are maybe not going to be factors. Now, I don't think anything is guaranteed for Ottawa or Montreal or Toronto for that matter. I think it's a dogfight. I think Buffalo is going to be better this year. I don't think Detroit's going to be a big factor in the playoff race, but I see they surprised Minnesota on, uh, on their opening night at the the new little Caesars arena. So um, I think the Florida teams are, are are something to keep an eye on. And uh, I think Buffalo will be better. Not sure they're necessarily a playoff team. Although boy, oh boy, that they play fast in that opening game against Montreal. Phil Housley wants them playing a fast game, and uh, they were doing that. So I, I I know people want to say this team will win the division, this team will miss the playoffs. Um, I don't do that. I have no idea. Your guess is as good as mine. But uh, I, I think the Leafs are going to be real good this year. I think Tampa is going to be uh, quite good. And uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to see Montreal, Ottawa, Florida, and uh, to maybe to a lesser extent, Buffalo and Detroit uh, and how they all factor in in that, uh, in that Atlantic division. Next question up is from Nick from North York, Ontario. Hi, Bob. Thanks for answering my question. With Phil Kessel celebrating his second Stanley Cup since leaving the Toronto Maple Leafs, I was wondering if you were aware of any other offers that were on the table when they traded Kessel to the Penguins. Was the Penguin offer the only one or simply the best one? And, uh, Anyways, uh, my understanding, Nick, is that uh, the Penguin offer was probably the only one on the table. Phil's contract was such that a lot of teams didn't feel like they could take it on. I think teams were nibbling around the edges and uh, were curious to see. And I I wouldn't have precluded the possibility of some other team at some point trading for Kessel, but... uh, the Penguins decided to uh, go all in on that one. It's uh, paid off in uh, back-to-back cups for them, and uh, Toronto was happy to uh, free up the cap space and get Sammy Kapanen, uh, sorry, Kasperi, Kasperi Kapanen, and uh, and I think the Leafs are headed in the right direction. So I think it was a trade that worked out for both teams, and I think I mentioned on the last Bob somewhere that uh, I think, at least in the off-season, um, Pittsburgh... I think they toyed with the idea of seeing if there was interest in Kessel out there, but uh, now that the season's begun and and didn't begin well for the Penguins, obviously the overtime loss to St. Louis and the, um, the, the massacre, there's the, the Chicago, we can't call it the St. Valentine's day massacre, but my goodness, 10 one. Are you kidding me? Uh, Penguins off to a rocky start. Um, they, uh, they'll have to see how they respond and see whether it's between the years and what adjustments they make. But uh, uh, in any case, uh, I don't believe Kessel's going anywhere for the balance of this season. And uh, the Penguins hope that they uh, get their their situation straightened out. Next up from Jacob Ball: Hey Bob, I'm a big fan of the question for you. As Vegas being uh, as Vegas being a new team and all, what do you think the chances are of the Golden Knights becoming one of the top contenders in the next? couple of years. Well, I think it's too ambitious to say that there'll be a top contender in the next couple of years, um, but five years down the road, um, anything's possible. Um, George McPhee and his group didn't use the expansion draft to try and put the absolute best team on the ice that they possibly could to start this season. Um, they used the expansion draft to try and accrue assets and first round picks and draft picks that give them a chance to be a legit contender in five years. So they are the first expansion team ever to have three first round picks in, in the, uh, the entry draft in the year in which they came into the league and they have multiple picks going forward. So I think that's the the plan should talk quickly about Vegas here. A lot of people, I'll, I'll, I'll ask my own question on the Bobcast. What's going on with the, uh, uh, the, the Pickard Subban thing. And, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights obviously, uh, picked up, uh, Malcolm Subban on, uh, on waivers. And, um, that led to, uh, Calvin Pickard, the goaltender, um, being put on waivers. And a lot of people are saying, what the hell are these guys doing? Well, you may not like the answer, but I'm going to tell you what the answer is. um, Right now, I would say the Vegas Golden Knights think that Calvin Pickard is a better NHL goaltender than Malcolm Subban, and and maybe by a fair bit. Malcolm Subban has had a tough time getting his career going. Uh, He hasn't developed the way the Boston Bruins thought he would when they took him in the first round. They put him on waivers, and uh, he was really probably no better than number four in the goaltending depth chart in the Boston Bruin organization right now. So, um... But what the, the, what the Vegas Golden Knights do think is that Malcolm Subban is an athletic goaltender who hasn't established himself in any way, shape or form yet, but who has the tools potentially with the right instruction and maybe a bit of a reclamation project to potentially become a number one goaltender in the National Hockey League. And Vegas looked at Pickard and made a a recognition. In our mind, Pickard's a good backup goaltender in the NHL, eminently capable right now. And we would probably do better with him as our backup than Malcolm Subban as our backup. But we need the roster spot. So we're going to put Pickard on waivers. And David Pryor, the goaltending coach for the Vegas Golden Knights, um, wants a year to work with Malcolm Subban and try and turn him back into what a lot of people thought he was going to be when the Boston Bruins took him in the first round, and that is a stud number one athletic goaltender. Will it happen? I don't know. But David, Pryor, Dave Pryor, uh, George McPhee's goaltending coach from, from a long way back, they were together with the Washington Capitals, is absolutely convinced that Malcolm Subban is worth the investment. And if in the short term um, they have to use Malcolm Subban as a backup goaltender, Um, even though he's probably not as proficient right now as as Calvin Pickard, um, then those losses are something the Vegas Golden Knights are prepared to live with in the name of trying to find the next goaltender to succeed Marc-Andre Fleury as the number one goalie um, for this expansion team. Um, So that's really the long and the short of it. And uh, I just had to look here to see, because when I started the... uh, taping this Bobcast, uh, the waivers hadn't been up, but I see that uh, both Marty marinson from the Toronto Maple Leafs and Calvin Pickard from the Vegas Golden Knights cleared waivers. Everybody was convinced that the Vegas Golden Knights were going to lose Pickard on waivers and nobody picked him up. And now he can go to the American hockey league. And if things don't work out with Subban for some reason, if he's so bad or they somewhere along the line decide that he's not worth the investment in this reclamation project with Dave Pryor, Uh, Well, then they can call Calvin Pickard back up and uh, reestablish that uh, flurry and Pickard as their one, too. But in the meantime, they want to go down this, uh, try to make Malcolm Malcolm Subban over the long haul the next year or so, a number one goaltender in the National Hockey League. Next question up here from Newell and Hislop. Uh, Hi, Bob. First off, I'd like to say I met you last year at the NHL Draft and remembered that you really liked Montreal's pick of Mikhail Sergachev. As you said, he had great upside to his game. So I was wondering, what do you think of the Canadians dealing him so quickly? Um, Yeah, Um, obviously the Canadians after they got knocked out in the first round by the Rangers were prepared to do something then that they weren't prepared to do at the trade deadline last year. And that was trade Mikhail Sergachev. You can remember general manager, Mark Bergevin after the trade deadline last March, he said, uh, I'm not trading this guy. Everybody wants him. He's a, he's a building block on our blue line. I'm just not going to do it. Well, then they lost to the Rangers in the first round. They needed an offensive jolt. And, uh, uh, when Mark Bergevin found out that he could trade Sergachev and get Jonathan Drouin to come in, um, boom, uh, he changed his mind. Every general manager reserves the right to change his mind, and Bergevin did. I think Drouin's going to be great for the Canadians. You saw that on uh, opening night with the shootout goal. I think he's, uh seems to be adapting fairly well in the short term to playing centre. Um, I think the Canadians, when they got him, they fully expected that they were going to have Radulov back in the lineup and that it would have been win-win Keeping Radulov's offense in the lineup and adding Drewann's offense to the lineup would make the Montreal Canadiens a much more dangerous offensive team, but they ended up losing Radulov to free agency, so they basically replaced Radulov in the lineup with Drewann. As for Sergachev, I'll be fascinated to see if he's NHL ready um, with the uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning this year um he's got all the tools to be a really good above average defenseman in the national hockey league he's big he's strong he's fast he's got elite skating ability and uh i think he he's the kind of kid that's got a dynamic quality to his game so i'll be curious to see if his game's buttoned down enough to come in and play immediate top four minutes for uh the the tampa bay lightning or whether at some point they recognize that uh, he's not ready for full-time duty. And if, if he's not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's uh, all part of being a 19-year-old in the NHL is not easy, although Victor Mete in Montreal seems to be making it look that way in the early going, but that's, uh, that's another story. Uh, next from uh, next question, Kurt Garecki from Detroit, Michigan. Hi, Bob. Why do you think there's an emerging trend with young goaltenders coming out of strong rookie or breakout seasons and then continuing to have issues to stay in the NHL or have success? It just seems like performance issues for young goalies are becoming more commonplace with goaltenders like Peter Morazic in Detroit, Connor Hellebuck in Winnipeg, John Gibson in Anaheim, especially last year's playoffs, and even an older goaltender like Steve Mason this past year. Do you think scoring is getting better? Coaches are becoming harder on youngsters um, or youngsters are becoming more uncoachable? What are your thoughts here? Do you think goalies like Morazic that have consistently faced adversity with their play will find a way to bounce back or will they become journeymen? Great question, and I'm not a goaltending expert, but here's one thing I do know. As difficult it is for offensive players to sustain offensive excellence year after year after year, I find it's much easier for skaters to do that than it is for goaltenders, even at the top end. I mean, Henrik Lundqvist has had some ups and downs over the years. Pekka Rinne, um, some of the guys that are Vezina candidates one year um, in the not-too-distant future, their game goes way south. And and I, it, I think it's just a testament to how difficult the league is um, and how hard it is for a goaltender to sustain a really high level of play. It's not to say some of them can't do it. I think Carey Price would be a good example of one who, when he's healthy, uh, most certainly does that. And I think with young goaltenders, that's just even more amplified um, because of youth. I think Peter Morazic's got a star quality to him. I understand that he had the problems that he had. He's not, by NHL standards, a big goalie, and that tends to work against you. But he's flamboyant, and he's um, agile, and he's got a flair for the dramatic, and he's got a a personality that I think will ultimately serve him well. Uh, I I just, when I saw Mrazek play junior hockey for the Ottawa 67s, when I saw Mrazek play at the World Junior Championship, and when I saw him break in with the Detroit Red Wings, I thought, here's a guy that's going to be a star goalie and uh i can't say with 100% certainty that he will be that star but i certainly think he's got all the uh the attribute uh, all the attributes to do it and uh and you're right i mean john gibson i i thought he would come in and be a dominant nhl goaltender right off the hop and there's been a real inconsistency to his game some of which is rooted in injury but nevertheless uh good question about uh about goaltenders Next question from Spencer Post. Hey, Bob, my name is Spencer Post. I'm a Californian. I've grown to love the sport we know as hockey, specifically, I guess, ice hockey. Although if you ask me, ice is the only type of hockey applicable and playing ball hockey is just playing lacrosse with hockey sticks. I have a couple of questions. I first learned to love the sport while living in New England, watching the Bruins. However, I live closer to San Jose and I now hope to someday live in a different city with hockey. My eyes are set on Denver, Seattle, or possibly even Vegas. My first question is, do I need to have a hockey identity associated with one team or am I allowed to cheer for the growth of the sport and the beautiful violence of the game? Quick answer to that question. Uh, Spencer, you are allowed to cheer for whoever the hell you want. And that's a nice way to put it. The beautiful violence of the game, uh, all, all in favor of that. My next question, Spencer says, is I rewatched part of the 2016, 2016 draft when Tyson Jost was selected by Colorado 10th overall. I spent this past weekend watching Jost, Clayton Keller, Christian Fisher, Maxime Comtois, Uh, Max Jones, Sam Steele, and many other prospects from Colorado, Anaheim, Arizona, and San Jose at our rookie tournament. To me, Tyson Jost was on a completely different level of skill than the rest. Do you think Tyson can challenge for the Calder? And while this is near impossible based on what you've seen, do you think he can become an elite premier player in this league? It's well known. Taves is his idol and Sackick is Taves' idol. I do feel like all the skills are there, especially breaking McDavid's scoring records at the World Junior Championship um hopefully you can take my question bob and i'm starting to play hockey myself so i hope it just speaks to the growth of the game that it spans from pei and nova scotia all the way down to northern and southern california thanks again bob i look forward to hearing the bobcast for the rest of this season well spencer uh great uh great post if you pardon the pun and uh as for rookies listen i i really like tyson joe's game and uh i think he's got all the tools to be uh a tremendous, what they call 200 foot player in the game. And I think he's got some real special qualities that did elicit favorable comparisons to Jonathan Taves in terms of his complete approach to the game and his ability to step up in key moments and, and, and be a clutch player. Um, whether he wins the rookie of the year or not, I don't know. Um, I see he, he had a bit of a slow training camp with Colorado because of some injuries, um, I believe he kind of started on the fourth line, but I don't know that he'll necessarily stay there very long for the Avs. I think he's got a that rare ability to move up and down the lineup and play with the best players on the team. And it, I don't doubt for a moment that he will rapidly become one of the best players on the Colorado avalanche team. I think he's got character. I think he's got talent. Uh, and I think he wants to be a star in this game and I think he's going to be as for rookie of the year. Um, if I were to handicap things, uh, the, the the three names that jump out at me as maybe obvious choices. Uh, first overall pick, Nico Hishier from the New Jersey Devils, dynamic training camp. I think this kid's the real deal. I think he's going to put up some good numbers. We'll talk about those specifics in a, in a few minutes. Um, Clayton Keller from Arizona, not very big, but I think he can make an immediate impact in the NHL the way that Mitch Marner did with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I find those two players... be very similar in uh in the way they play their game and uh i know mitch marner got a lot of comparisons to patrick kane as he was coming up and i think clayton keller also warrants a lot of comparisons to uh to to patrick kane in that he's a highly highly skilled creative player with vision um who's maybe a little on the diminutive side versus um uh the, the bigger players in the NHL, but the game's completely changed in that regard. We're seeing it all across the NHL. Johnny Goodrow and, and other youngsters that are small making huge impacts. And keep in mind, what's special about Patrick Kane as a hockey player is that when he came into the league as a 163-pound rookie and won the Calder Trophy, he was doing it at a time in the NHL when the emphasis was on big, strong, heavy teams like the Los Angeles Kings and others, and that the it was it was almost incredulous what he did in that first year as a rookie. So um, that's not to say there aren't a ton of, I mean, Brock Besser, I mentioned Sergeyev, um Nolan Patrick, uh, playing second line center. He's not as flashy as he but he's a real smart hockey player who's going to put up points. Be fascinated to see what Dubois does in, uh, in, uh, in Columbus, the uh, Brinkett in Chicago, uh, on and on it goes. So, um, but I, I, I really uh, like another rookie, and that's Charlie McAvoy from the Boston Bruins. Um, it's not easy for a, a defenseman to win the Calder. Uh, we've had it happen twice since uh, the, the salary cap era of two, from 2005 forward. Tyler Myers did it with the Buffalo Sabres in 2010, and Aaron Eckblad did it with the Florida Panthers in 2015. I think Charlie McAvoy, the sky's the limit. I uh, jokingly, and not so jokingly probably, uh, call him American Drew Doughty. I think he can impact the game in every way. I saw he scored in the Bruins opener. I saw what he did, the immediate impact he made in the playoffs for the Boston Bruins against the Ottawa Senators. And uh, I think if there's a defenseman who could run by the offensive pyrotechnics of guys like Heasier and Keller and all those other offensive players that I mentioned and a bunch I didn't. Uh, that it could be Charlie McAvoy. So I don't make an official pick for Rookie of the Year, but I guess if I was forced to and you twisted my arm, I'll take Charlie McAvoy from the Boston Bruins. Okay, uh, next question related to the last question comes from Blair Youngblood. Hi, Bob. Uh, my question to you is regarding Nico Hesher. After seeing how well he's done in the preseason, three goals, one assist in three games, what do you think his point total might be this season? Also, where do you see his overall seeing being once he hits his prime? I think uh, as far as the second question goes, his overall ceiling, I think Nico Hesher is going to be a star. I think we saw this at the World Junior Championship when he was probably the most dangerous player on the ice even though he was only draft eligible playing against 19- and 20-year-olds. I think he's got an amazing ability to score goals. I think he's a fearless player who even though he's not the biggest guy in the world has plenty of hockey strength to go to the areas where he needs to go. I think he uh, he has an amazing ability to make plays, be creative, uh, make everybody on the ice a threat to score a goal. Um, but he's got... He, enormous finishing power as a skilled player himself. I don't know what his precise numbers might be this year. I looked at this past season. I mean, the bar keeps getting higher and higher for these rookies. Austin Matthews, 40 goals, 69 points. Patrick Laine, 36 goals, 64 points. Nylander and Marner also had 61 points. So you're seeing the top guys, top rookies last year all got between 60 and 70 points. And the, the high-end guys got you know, 35 to 40 goals. Two years ago, Artemi Panarin was a 30-goal man and he had 77 points. Is he a little bit different because he had so much experience coming over from the KHL and was just on the verge of not being eligible for the award because he was older? Maybe. Uh, Jack Eichel in his rookie season, 24 goals, 56 points. Um, in the in the prior years, uh, uh, the year before that, uh, Stone Mark Stone, uh, Johnny Goodrow, Uh, those guys all ended up with 20 to 30 goals and 60 to 70 points. So we're starting to see a trend emerge here where that 60 to 70 point mark is where the the elite rookies fall into. Um, I don't want to put too much pressure on any rookie because sometimes they do stumble out of the gate, uh, even if they have a strong preseason. But uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that Nico Heeshier could be that uh, – minimum uh 20 to 30 goal guy potentially more than that but let's not make expectations too high on him and has a chance to be in that 60 to 70 point range if things were to go well with him but in any case he's a dynamic exciting player and uh, the new jersey devils are lucky to have him next question comes from Keir shaw uh, with the news just coming out that the Oilers have sent Yessi puglia back to the American Hockey League and Pierre-Luc Dubois is looking good to make the Columbus Blue Jackets. How has the perception shifted about the top few picks in the 2016 draft? Is the consensus now that the Jackets made the right decision or do the majority of scouts execs still like puglia long-term potential? Great question. Um, Keir, uh brings up an interesting point. It's funny, uh, I would have expected that that because Austin Matthews and Patrick Laine came to the NHL and made immediate impacts, I would have bet big money that Jesse Pugliarvi would have made the Edmonton Oilers in his first year and maybe not put up as many numbers, uh, especially on the goal-scoring front, as, uh, as Laine and Matthews. But I thought he'd be an everyday player for the Oilers in his rookie season. He wasn't um it's not a big deal Uh, everybody develops at a different time he needed more time to adjust to the smaller ice and get his game in order and earn the trust of head coach Todd McClellan but it is interesting that here we are in a second year and he's back down now yeah I think he had a much better training camp and much more representative training camp of what he's capable of and I won't be surprised if he's back in their lineup sooner rather than later um, this season Um, but I was still a little surprised that uh, he didn't make the grade and that Kyler Yamamoto um, the 2017 first rounder from the Edmonton Oilers, uh, another small guy, small but mighty with a tremendous amount of skill, is getting his opportunity. But uh, Yamamoto only played five, six minutes in his first outing. I'll be interested to see how short his leash is as they look at the 9-10 game threshold and whether Puglia might be coming back. As for Dubois, um, the year that uh, Matthews went one line, he went two and Dubois went three. Uh, I was mildly surprised that Columbus did that um, because I thought Poole was the consensus number three guy, but the Blue Jackets were convinced that that Dubois was the better long-term bet. And um, he's had a good camp and they expect him to be an everyday player for him, although that determination will once again be made once we get into regular season games and Columbus's openers tonight. Um, So... um, We'll, we'll monitor the situation. Those two players will always be linked. We'll always look at them. But here's the bottom line with uh, 19-year-olds in the National Hockey League. Uh, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. And whatever Dubois does or doesn't do, whatever Pouliarvi does or doesn't do this season, uh, the real testament as to what these guys are all about will ultimately be decided two or three years down the road. And so that's when we'll make uh, that final determination. Okay, I've droned on way too long today. Uh, Let's get down to the final couple of questions here. Uh, First one from Greg Smith. Do you agree that overall the NHL season is too long with the playoffs going into June? Hand in hand with this question, do you feel that shortening the number of exhibition games during preseason would help? My reason for asking is the Leafs and Montreal ice near starting lineups the other day in preseason. Well, Greg, I don't think there's any question the NHL season is too long, certainly in terms of when it ends. Um, but we're always going to end up in June. There's not much we can do about that. For starters, there has to be 82 games. They're not. We would like less. A 68-game season would be great. A 72-game season would be great. It would be so much better for the players, but the economics of the game dictate that they're not going back from 82 games. So get used to it. And the problem is, if you start the NHL regular season any earlier than the beginning of October in the U S markets where you're competing against the world series, the NFL, um, and all those other great things, uh, you American based NHL teams try to schedule as few games as possible in October, and they would never want a game in a regular season game in September. So we're kind of stuck starting when we are starting. Um, I would like to shorten training camp, uh, It shouldn't be any longer than 10 days. The players, they come now, they're in perfect shape. Give give a 10-day training camp with maybe three or four exhibition preseason games. But again, that comes back to economics. Um, Those season ticket packages are sold on the basis of multiple preseason games. So that would impact uh, the bottom line for NHL teams, and nobody's going to do that. The good news, I guess, um, outside of the fact that – NHL players aren't going to the Olympics. That's not the good news. The good news about the Olympics is that at least the season's not going to be later this year because we take a two or three week break to shut down for the Olympics. We all want NHL players at the Olympics. That's not going to happen. But anyways, the season's not going to drag out longer because of an Olympic break. And it didn't start later this year because of the World Cup. The fact that we started the season on October the 2nd instead of a week later like we did last year, is at least encouraging that maybe we can start the Cup Final before June and not drift too late into June. Okay, final question comes from Bill in Detroit. Uh, Hey, Bob, thanks for the new edition of my podcast. Listening for this week's question, I was wondering with their vast catalog and your love for the band, why did you choose All Tore Up by the Tragically Hip as the theme song for the podcast, and could you please list your uh, your top, as time allows, five or ten top hip songs that are on the cottage playlist and why? Love your work with the Overdrive crew. Thanks again, and have a good day. Well, I'll tell you what, Bill. On the uh, my favorite tragically hip songs, um, at some point later, I'll I'll get to that. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but as for why I chose All Tore Up don't really know. I love that uh, In Violet Light album. I think it's vastly underrated. I love the opening of All Tore Up. It, it tends to get me excited. Um, I'm 61 years old, but I still act like a kid sometimes. And on nights when I know I might be going out drinking, um, All Tore Up to me is the, the perfect uh, pre-drink, pre-go-out-on-the-town song. And uh, it gets me fired up. So uh, when I do the Bobcast, I like to get fired up. And All Tore Up gets me fired up. So uh, that's the answer to that question. And as for uh, the the hip catalog and coming up with my favorites or ranking them or whatever, um, we're going to have to do that at some point this, uh, this season. Absolutely. i um, always thinking of my pal Gore Downey and the tragically hip. So I would love to do um, a Bobcast uh, devoted to uh, my favorite hip songs. And uh, that, Bobcast edition is going to be called the Turn Up the F- Music edition of the Bobcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account, and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.